This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, if you're excited to study God's Word together this morning, turn to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 145. This morning, I want to take the opportunity to simply cast vision for us to be thinking about our lives, both individually as well as a church, for 2018 as we kick off this uh, new semester here on January 28th, 2018. And I want you to be thinking today about the next generation, the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason I want you to be thinking about that today is because this is the heartbeat of our mission here at Mill City Church. And what a fitting occasion this morning to see uh, two more young adults being baptized today in faith in Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that new life. We celebrate the passion for Jesus. We celebrate the passion for his church. And we continue to rejoice over what God is doing here in our midst. And you, you look around and you know the overwhelming majority of our congregation is under 30. And we rejoice over that. But that's not normal today, especially in the West. We see the studies, we see the demographics, but we also understand and know our own families. And we see the results of what is, uh, has been a decades-long shift here in the United States of America. Here in the last several years, we've seen the statistics that even close to 70% of kids who have grown up in our youth groups and grown up in Christian families leave the church at least for a time when they graduate high school at age 18. And that should cause alarm for us in the church because after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on good youth ministers and good youth ministries and camps and retreats and programs, this is the product that we are seeing. And then I believe even more stark than that is when you hear statistics like this. James Emery White, who is the former president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, wrote a great little book on Generation Z that was just released last year, and it's called The Rise of the Nuns. Now, this is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. This isn't like Overwatch for the Catholic Church. So the rise of the nuns, meaning the nuns are the people who would identify themselves as the religiously unaffiliated. Basically to say, I, I have no faith. I'm not ascribing to any particular faith. And I want you to hear these staggering statistics because it should alarm us in the church of Jesus Christ today. In 1940, about 5% of the American population would ascribe as a religiously unaffiliated. 5%. Over the next 50 years, between 1940 and 1990, that number would only shift 3%. From 5% to 8% in 50 years. But then something crazy happened. Between 1990 and 2008, a mere 18 years, that number almost doubled from 8% to 15%. And today, in 2018, that number, those who would say that I am a religious nun, I am religiously unaffiliated, it's now at almost 25%. It has tripled in less than 30 years. 
one out of every four adults would say, I'm nothing. And when you look at those under 30, it's even more staggering because it's one out of every three. Now, as Christ followers and leaders in God's church, we have to reckon with this. We have to reckon with this because we have a choice. We can either say we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and hoping for different results. But and I'll say this lovingly this morning, culturally speaking, isn't that the very definition of insanity? We're going to keep doing the exact same things and hope that we get different results. Or what we do is we look at that and we say, oh, Lord, forgive us for all the ways in which we have failed the next generation. And we may not even know all the ways in which we did that. Lord, we really had the best intentions. We really had the best hopes for them. But Father, obviously what we're doing has not worked well. But we don't want to lose the next generation. We don't want to lose the next generation to the world. We want the next generation to be just as passionate about you as we are. So Father, correct our steps. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're trying to do here at Mill City Church. We want you to know today that whether you are 16 or whether you are 80 in this place, you are welcome here and we want you here. We even need you here. But what we want is we want an army of the Lord, an army of love to circle their arms around the next generation and live for the sake of passing the faith along. This morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack that a little bit. I want to challenge us. I want us to wrap our minds around that a little bit, but I want to call us to something so much bigger than even that. And so in Psalm 145, we're going to read the first seven verses of this chapter, and then I'm going to ask you two very probing, life-changing questions this morning that I hope will color our view of the Lord as well as our mission, but it will also spur us on to be about seeing the next generation passionate about the glory of God. Let's read this psalm together, and then we're going to come back and we're going to see how God might probe our hearts this morning. The psalmist David writes this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. I ask for your grace this morning. Uh, this, I have suffered bronchitis for the last three weeks, and I am slowly and methodically getting over it. Um, I might cough today. I might cough several times, but I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. So if I make some weird inflections this morning, I'm not being emotional, and uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a speech impediment. It's just, it's just the way it is today with the cough. <coughs> I love this passage. <clears throat> I love this chapter. 
I love this chapter because this is a psalmist that is consumed with the glory of God. He is consumed with the greatness of God. And I want to ask you, after reading this chapter this morning, two life-changing questions for the sake of the next generation. And do you see that? Very, I'm very intentional in that wording. I just wonder today if we would start seeing our lives in light of, for the sake of, the next generation of believers. That I'm not just living my life for the sake of my life. I'm not even just viewing church as what church can do for me, but I'm seeing even my Christian discipleship as, Father, how can I leverage my life, my resources, my passion? How can I leverage it for the sake of those who would come behind me so that they may have the same passion that I have? But the first question we got to ask is we got to get personal first. And here it is. Are you consumed with a passion for God's glory? Are you consumed with a passion for God's glory? When you read this psalm, you cannot help but see the passion that David has for the greatness of God. You cannot help but see the passion that David has for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, in these first seven verses, there are nine different vocabulary words that would be synonyms for praising God. And then if you count how many times he repeats, things, repeats words, he uses 12 words in these seven verses to talk about worshiping, ascribing glory, praise to our great God. We, you just go down through verse 1. He says, I will extol you, my God. Verse 2, I will bless your name. I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Verse 3, he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Verse 4, he says, one generation shall commend your works. And then he says, they shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 5, he says that on his wondrous works, I will meditate. Verse 6, he says, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And then repeats, declare. Verse 7, he says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. As his nickname states, David truly was a man after God's own heart. Because David being so consumed with a passion for the glory of God, he is echoing the heart of God himself. Because God himself is consumed with a passion for his own glory. And we see it evidenced in a scripture like Isaiah 48, 11. This isn't the only place in the Bible that we read something like this, but this is... This is a verse that's very indicative of God's passion for his own glory. Isaiah 48 says this, For my own sake, God says, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Brothers and sisters, we may need to be reminded this morning that God is passionate for his own glory. God himself is passionate about his worship and his praise from all of his creation. You may be thinking, well, 
Pastor, I don't know that I like that too much because that paints God as an egotistical, arrogant being. And I'm not sure I want to worship someone who is arrogant and egotistical like that. Well, let me humbly and gracefully respond to you if that's what you're wondering. God would only be egotistical and arrogant if he were not who he says he is. If I said my glory I will not give to another, if I said my name will not be profaned, then you would have every right to characterize me as narcissist of the year. But if God, who is the greatest of all beings, who is the most awesome being who ever lived, who does have all power and all majesty and all worth that is owing to him, then it is both wise and loving for him to be all about his glory. You see, if God was not all about his glory, it would be very unwise because it would say that he doesn't know what is best. He doesn't know what is the greatest. And so if we can't trust him to know what is the greatest and what is the best, how would we trust him in anything else? It would also be very unloving for God. It would be very unloving towards us for him not to exalt himself above all things or to be passionate about his own glory because the moment that he does not point all attention to his own glory is the moment that he says something else is greater than me and you can go chase after that. And if, and if that is not the greatest and not the most satisfying thing you can pursue, that'd be a very unloving God because he would be allowing you to go feast from a trough that would leave you empty and still failing on the inside. But because God is the greatest of the great, and because God is owing of all worth and all worshiped, it is both loving and wise for him to be all about his own glory and to be passionate about it. And so the more you and I as his followers are passionate about the glory of God, the more our hearts and his hearts are and his heart are becoming aligned. This is good news this morning for those of us who follow our God. Now let's go back to Psalm 145. <coughs> because what I want you to show see, <clears throat> what I want to show you in Psalm 145 is I want you to see something very important and even crucial that David shows us. He shows us the importance of the head and the heart. And you cannot divorce these two without erring in a significant way. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. In verse 5, David says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now, we have spent a lot of time over the last few weeks through different voices in our church talking about the importance of God's word and why we should read God's word, why we should meditate on it, why we should memorize it, study it, read it. And the re one of the primary reasons is because when we read God's word, we start understanding God as he truly is and how he has revealed himself to us. We understand his acts, his actions, his ways, his character, what he commands us to do, what he warns us against not doing. And it is the only source, primary source, through which we can know those things. 
And so we devote ourselves to meditating on the word of God. And here's why. Because you see this in your notes. If we're going to develop a passion for the glory of God, then number one, we must know God as who he is. Not as who we would like to postulate him to be. We don't want to sit around and just hypothesize. I mean, have you ever been in a group like that where said, well, I just... I just feel like God is blank. Well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I just feel like God would never, really. I want to ask you something very lovingly this morning. Do you want to base your entire eternity on what you think is true or might be about God? Or would you rather learn and discover who God truly is as he has revealed himself to be. And that's the importance of the scriptures. And David is getting this here. He says in verse 5, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. You know what David is basically telling us there? If you want to know who God truly is and you want to know what God truly does or has done or would ever do or what he would not ever do, then you must meditate on the primary source. We must know God as who he is. Now, in the Christian church, oftentimes we get this part. It's the what? Read your Bible. Why? Just read it. We get the what? And oftentimes what we do is we read, we read, and we read, and we have a great knowledge of God. And we know a lot of facts about God. We know a lot of memory verses. We know chapter and verse. We can give you numbers. We can give you page numbers. But what David shows us here is that God, yes, is concerned with the head. And he is concerned with knowledge and right knowledge at that. But it doesn't end there. Because if you just stop there, then you haven't truly seen God for who he is and responded in the way in which you should respond. What David shows us here is that God is not just concerned about the head. He's also concerned about the heart because he says, yes, know God as who he is. But secondly, extol God for who he is. And it's what he says in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Do you see the response? There is a response to seeing God for who he is. There is a response, there is a fitting response to understanding and comprehending the majesty and the splendor of this awesome God. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Knowledge of God that does not lead to worship of God leads to a cold, stale religiosity. And if you have that type of faith, then you have a faith that is going to err on the side of legalism, judgmentalism, and even Pharisaism. Because you're going to know all the right answers, but it is divorced of any emotion or feeling from your heart. Now let's go to the flip side. 
Because here's what's really popular today in the 21st century West. Worship of God that is divorced from a knowledge of God in his word. And if that is your faith, then what you're going to err on the side of there is just simply sentimentality. Emotionalism. Man, I just want to sing out songs. And I feel good when I sing them. But the problem here is that if they're not grounded in and based in a knowledge of an understanding of who God has revealed himself as in the word, then you are just simply singing warm prom songs to Jesus. And there's really nothing different about what you're singing than what you would sing to your lover at a dance. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. But when you know God deeply through his word, and you read about the splendor of his majesty and the unsearchable depths of knowledge of him, and you read about his works and what he has done, and you read about his promises, and you see him as he has revealed himself to be, what the psalmist is going to tell us is what that should do is it should spark an emotive, passionate, loving response in your heart. And there is where we see a true spiritual physic taking place and where a passion for God's glory begins to develop. This is good, good stuff this morning. And a passion for God's glory is the greatest passion we can have. And it is the greatest thing that we can demonstrate to the next generation. I wonder this morning, and, and please forgive me if it seems like I am. I'm not trying to just paint with one large brush here. But I wonder if some of the disconnects between today's generation as it pertains to matters of faith and God is that they have watched generations go before them or even watching generations today know a lot of knowledge but there's no love and there's no passion and there's no real meaning in everyday life. And it's just something rote that's being passed on. I wonder this morning in 2018, would you be praying to our Lord, be praying to our God, asking him, Father, show me who you are in your word this year as I read it. And Father, would you light a fire in my heart that I may respond to you like the psalmist David did in Psalm 145, because I want a passion for your glory, not only for myself, but for the sake of the next generation. So that's the first question this morning. Are you consumed with a passion for the glory of God? Second question is a follow-up from there. <coughs> Are you then concerned with passing on a passion for God's glory? Are you then concerned with passing on a passion for God's glory? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another. One generation will commend your works to another. I love that word commend. For some of you, you may have a different translation than the ESV that we use here. And you may even see something written like this. One generation shall praise your works to another. 
because that's at the heart of what the word commend means. There is something that's not just audible, but it's demonstrated that through your life of worship and your life of being consumed with the glory of God, that you are commending that worship to the next generation. God is not only passionate about the glory of his name this morning, brothers and sisters, but he is also passionate about each generation passing on that passion to the next generation. Here's a newsflash this morning. This is very important for our very relativistic world, pluralistic world in which we live. Each generation does not get a fresh revelation of God. Did you hear that? Each generation, each subsequent generation that lives on planet Earth does not get a fresh revelation of God. Now, our culture would love this. Our culture would love this because culture would love nothing more to say that, oh, yeah, all of the stuff that you Christians say about God, that was great 2,000 years ago. And that was awesome 200 years ago or, or even last century. Hey, but this is the 21st century. God has changed. God is different now. And there's a new revelation for a new generation. That's a lie. That's not reality today. There is one revelation of the eternal God of the universe whose name is Yahweh. And he has revealed himself in the pages of his word. And he has preserved that word for each generation. And so it is incumbent upon every generation of believers, regardless of your age, to not only have a passion for his glory, but being deeply concerned about passing on that passion to the next generation. That's what the psalmist says in verse 4. But it's not only here. This is a theme all over the Bible. You go all the way back to Genesis 18. In Genesis 18 and verse 19, speaking of Abraham, God says this, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is God's instruction to Moses and the people whom he is leading. And beginning in verse 4, God says this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is Jesus about his disciples as being the little ones. And he says this in Matthew 18, verse 5. He says, we will not hide them from their children. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Brothers and sisters, look up here for a moment. This is Jesus. When he uses terms like one such child and one of these little ones, he's not talking about physical, biological children. He's talking about young disciples, fresh converts. Jesus is so passionate 
about the growth and development of his disciples that he says that if there is any person who would name Christ, who would cause any of them harm in the faith, in their development, he uses hyperbolic terminology to say it would be better for a millstone to be around his neck and to cast into the depths of the sea. That's how passionate Jesus was about making sure that the next generation was raised up in the glory of God. Titus chapter 2, if you go to the very, towards the end of the Bible in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, this is the pattern for the New Testament church. Here's what Titus writes uh, to the church as older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Here it is, verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And for the men, verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So it is clear this morning that God is deeply concerned about the next generation following his ways. And so again, don't you want to be deeply concerned about what our Heavenly Father is deeply concerned about? If the next generation is what he's concerned about, we as his followers today should be just as concerned. Now, back to Psalm 145. Okay, just a few moments ago, we've already seen the importance of both the head and the heart and our personal passion for God's glory. Now, in similar fashion, I want you to see how David shows us the same principle in passing on this passion to the next generation. You're going to see something that involves both the head and the heart, something that is taught and something that is demonstrated. Number one, you see this in your notes. Here's what we do. Number one, we teach... We teach them the works of God. We teach them. Verse 4 says that they shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 5 says, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Verse 6, they shall speak of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. So words are involved here. The word is involved here. So there is a teaching element of passing on a passion for God's glory. We teach the truth of God. We teach the scriptures. It's at the very heart of disciple making. Jesus said it in Matthew 28 that teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And that is an important, crucial aspect of passing on this passion for God's glory. But it doesn't stop there. If it's just simply didactic teaching of information, that's a very incomplete discipleship. And brothers and sisters, this is where I think we find ourselves so much in the West. We're convinced that if we just teach the right things, that it's like a factory. Well, they have the word, they've been taught, so what? The Bible tells us that it's not just about teaching. Teaching's important. The words are there, but there's something else. Not only do we teach them 
the works of God, but we show them the work of God. And this is where it gets really good. We show them the work of God. In other words, we demonstrate through our lives this passion for the glory of God. I want, I want you to think for a moment. What if we just simply taught about how awesome and amazing God is, but it makes absolutely no difference in our lives whatsoever? What are we teaching? We're actually teaching that what we're saying is true is not true. This is so great. This is the best thing that mankind can ever hear. But it hasn't really affected my life much. And I'm very quiet about it at best. And so much of our discussion in the West is about protecting our kids from all of the evil and harm out there. And we want to inculcate them and insulate them from the ways of the world. And we think that if we could just protect them and put our wings around them long enough and we just teach them the right stuff about God, that that is the end to which all of this points. It's not, brothers and sisters. Does that mean we shouldn't protect our kids? No, that's not what I'm saying. Does it mean that we shouldn't teach them the word of God? No, that's not what I'm saying either. I'm saying that there is great power when we teach them marvelous, big truths about the glory of God, and then we demonstrate to them through our lives the incredible difference it makes in our life. We demonstrate to them a passion. We show them a passion. We show them a love for God. We show them a love for his word. We tell them about the difference it's constantly making in our lives. Now, where do we see this in the text? In verse 4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another. The idea there is one generation looks at this generation and it sees the older generation or the generation that had just come before them and they see the passion and the love for God. They see the application of discipleship in their lives and they're witnessing it. There is great power when you're hearing it, but then you're also seeing it. And don't we see this in everyday life? I mean, think about this uh, for those of you who are parents or aunts or uncles and you're around babies or toddlers. If you sit down and you look at a four-year-old and you say, now here's how you tie your shoe. What you do is you take one string and you take the other string and you cross them there and then you loop around and then you, you, you tie it there and then, then you put a loop over here, you bring it around, you bring it under and there you go, you have it tied a shoe. Now, if that's how you're going to teach your child to tie her shoe, you're still going to be tying her shoes at 18. But if you tell them how to do it, but then take the shoe out and you show them, there's great power in that. And then with what you do is you have one shoe in your hand and you give them a shoe and you take them through step by step, both audibly as well as visually. Your child's going to be tying their shoe in a very short amount of time. Because we are both, we're people who need both instruction and a visual. I love what the psalmist does here. Because the psalmist tells us that if we're going to pass on the glory of God and a passion for the glory of God to the next generation, we have to tell them, but we also have to show them. We teach them 
and we show them. Look, look with me at verse 7. I love this. This is, this is where the symbiotic nature of this comes. <clears throat> verse 7 says, they, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You see, at some point, the instruction has gone from the head to the heart. It's gone from the head to the heart. And if, as you make your way through verses 4 through 7, you see the, <laughs> the symbiotic nature of what the psalmist is saying that, uh, that this generation is going to commend. And on your glorious splendor of your majesty, I will meditate and they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame. Do you see the symbiotic nature? Brothers and sisters, this is what we're passionate about here at Mill City Church. We are passionate about preaching and teaching and instructing a big, great picture of the unsearchable depths of the greatness, splendor, and majesty of Yahweh God made manifest in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we preach and teach and instruct that big picture, awesome view of God, and then we're going to sing deep songs in response to that, and we're going to lift our hands, and we're going to clap our hands, and we're going to pray fervent prayers, and then we're going to live faithful lives, and then we're going to go out into the world, and we're going to serve others in the name of this Jesus, because he is so powerful. He is so awesome. When we live that way, we grow in this passion for God's glory, and then we're so deeply concerned with passing it on to the next generation. I will submit to you, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 145, there is a great power in that. That is why I'm convinced that there are so many of you in this room who have come to faith in Jesus Christ in this church over the last several years. You've been baptized here. You have been sent out on mission here. And so many of you in your testimonies, you have said something like this. You know, I grew up believing some things about God, but there was something about when I came here, it just made sense. And so many of you have said things like, I've never heard the Bible taught like this before. Many of you have said, I've never had people actually take interest in my life. And I had so many examples to learn from. Brothers and sisters, this is Psalm 145. This is what we're talking about today. Now, here's what I want to do in the remainder of our time. I want to put this into practical application for our church in 2018. What does it look like to grow in this passion for God's glory and to pass on this passion for God's glory to the next generation? Now, of course, when we talk about generations, that has a lot to do with age. Biology is at play here. And so you can think, there's my grandparents' generation. There's my parents' generation. Then there's my generation. And then there's the generation that may be behind me. And that's true. That is an aspect of this generational talk that we're having today. But in the church of Jesus Christ, as we so uh, distinctly see in Titus chapter 2, there is also an essence in disciple-making that it's also generations have a lot to do, not just with age, but those who have walked with Jesus 
longer than I've walked. Or there are those behind me who have not walked with Jesus for as long as I have walked. And so here's how I would describe it to you today. As it pertains to our church, there are always going to be believers who have gone ahead of me, and there are believers who are coming behind me. Do you see that picture? There are those who have walked with Jesus for a much longer than me, and they're walking ahead of me. And the reality is, that person may be 30 and you're 18. Or it could be someone who is 80 and you're 40. Or it could be you have walked with Jesus for a long time and you're 25, but now there's a new believer at 40. And you may be 15 years younger, but you have opportunity to lead them. Every one of us has that responsibility and the mandate from God to be passing on a passion for the glory of God to the next generation. You may be in here today and you're 60 or 70, and you can invest your life in those who are 40 or 50. You may be in here today and you're, you're 40, and you could be investing in someone who's 30. You might be here today and, and you are a sophomore and it's time for you to say, I've learned a lot over the last year. It's time for me to invest in a freshman and even to start praying about that high school senior that's coming up next year. You might even be in here and you're a high school senior. I love John's testimony today. And to be able to look at your peers on your track team, cross country team, or someone who's in your lab at school and to say, I'm seeing my responsibility to pass on a passion for the glory of God to the next generation. Every one of us has to think this way. Every one of us has the responsibility to do it. And I just wonder what it would be like if in 2018, if at Mill City Church, and look, we're a great family of God here, but it's my responsibility to constantly push us to excel still more. What would it be like if rather than trying to circle up with everybody who is just like me, I started thinking more intentional to say, how can I get to know someone who might be in the next generation? How can I get to know someone? And what it may require you to do is to get here a little bit earlier on Sunday mornings so you can have conversations. It might mean that you need to stick around for a little bit longer after we dismiss and get to know someone you don't know as well. It may mean that we need to start sitting in some different places around the room just so that I can be exposed to people that I'm not normally exposed to. It means that those who are 20 are going to need to step outside of their comfort zone and get to know someone who's 30 or 40. It's going to mean that someone who's 60 or 70 will have to step outside of their comfort zone and get to know someone who's 40 or someone who's 18. Perhaps it means that there's someone who says, you know what, I'm going to take ownership and I'm going to intentionally orchestrate some dinners or some lunches and I'm going to intentionally choose some people from different generations so that we can sit at the same table together and we can commend the works of God to one another. Because here's the reality. It's not just that young adults need older adults to glean wisdom from. That is a reality. But I would also submit to you that for those of you who have a little bit more gray hair even than I do, you need to sit down at the table with 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds because I will tell you as someone who works with them every day, they will help you interpret the world in which you live. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. Every one of us, regardless of generation, 
And so I just wonder what it would be like if this faith family takes that next step to say, God, give me a passion for your glory and make me concerned with passing on that passion to the next generation. Our church is already busting through a lot of the demographics and statistics that we're seeing negatively in the Christian church in America. I want to pray that God will just continue to help us push through that. God is using us to do some great and marvelous things for his great and marvelous name. Would this be the year that you would say, I'm seeing my life in the context for the sake of the next generation, regardless of who that is. Every one of us has that mandate. Can I pray towards that end this morning? And would you pray with me towards that end? And I'm going to ask you to do something that is a little bit different, but just in a show of solidarity. Can we stand this morning? (coughs) Can we stand this morning in honor of the word that we just read? And as we pray, let's call out to God individually, but also corporately for the sake of our church, for the sake of our mission, and then we're going to sing in, in prayer and expectancy for God to work continually through our church. Father, we come before you today recognizing that you are great. <clears throat> and you are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. Your greatness is unfathomable. And Father, we recognize today that our greatest need is you. Father, I pray today that you would align our hearts with yours, that we may have a passion for your glory, just like you have a passion for your glory. I pray today that you would give us a passion for the next generation, that regardless of what season of life we're in, that we would be thinking about how we can leverage our lives, our homes, our resources, our relationships for the sake of those who are coming behind us. I'd also pray that we would look ahead of us And we would celebrate the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Those who have deceased and also those who are still alive. And that we would learn from each other. That we would lean on each other. And we would show the world what a redeemed family of God looks like. Father, we pray that you would continue to multiply us. Continue to bring new life to us. And we pray, Father, that you would be more glorified and our faith family this year than even last year. So, Father, tune our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.